Get your Bibles out today. We're in John chapter 2. John the Beloved, the one who laid on Jesus' breast. John chapter 2, I'm going to read you verses 1 through 11. We're going to look at the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. Jesus is at a wedding feast. We uh, just finished my last of, I think, seven weddings this year, and uh, I'm starting to get good at them. But today is uh, 29 years that I've been married to this beautiful lady in the front row. Amen. 29 years. She's a lucky girl. I figured if I keep telling her, she'll believe it. But uh, yet, next year will be 30. I don't know what happens at 30. We get better. She's aging like wine. I'm aging like milk. But that's a, that's a whole different story. But Jesus is at a wedding feast, and he's, he's about to perform a miracle here. I'm going to just thank God for the word, and I'm going to read John 2, 1 through 11, and we're going to jump in. Father, we thank you this morning that we can come together as brothers and sisters in your presence and worship you. Father, I I thank you for each soul here this morning. I pray that the word would go forth in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit and that you would change our hearts, you would stretch our hearts from the inside out. You would change us by your word, that none of us would leave here the way we came, but we'd leave changed by the word of God. I pray it in Jesus' name. And the church said... Amen. The miracle at Cana, John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw out some now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it come from, but the servants who had drawn it knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Well, there's so much to unpack in that miracle there. We're just going to cover the first four verses today. I just want you to close your eyes. I'm going to read you those first four verses, and I want them to get into your spirit. On the third day was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So let's take a look at what's going on here. This is an interesting miracle, and and it is to me for a couple reasons. The first reason I find it interesting is because it's the first first miracle that Jesus does. Firsts are always important, amen? 
Anytime you do something, the first time you do it, you know, it's a pattern, it's a memory, it's something that, you know, sets the course of things. Jesus is kicking off a string of 37 miracles recorded here in the New Testament. He's going to do 37 miracles, but this is his first and uh, it really launches Jesus' miracle ministry. Up until that point, you know, he, he had done things and had wisdom and been in the temple and said things that astonished people. But there was this, uh, something had happened at the point of the journey here where the light switch is now flipped and Jesus is about to do three years of powerful public ministry that would turn the world upside down forever. And it starts off with this miracle. So it's interesting. The second thing that I find interesting about it is that Jesus is about to make wine for a people who drank a bunch of wine already. If Jesus was a Baptist, he would have said, that's enough wine. But the fact that he does that, I mean, that's a little bit intriguing to me. In Scripture, everybody looks nervous now. They're like, you know, in Scripture, wine represents the blessing of God. We're going to have the new wine at the marriage feast of the Lamb, amen, in heaven. Jesus said, I'll drink no more wine, what, until he takes the bride home. So Jesus is dry right now, and he's waiting, and, but there's this new wine that's coming, and it's part of the celebratory uh, nature of the wedding feast, and there's a lot of implications here. And this is his first miracle. He's about to make wine when some of us would have cut the wine off, and so... Uh, it's interesting to me. Now, this account of Jesus turning water into wine only happens in one gospel. We said uh, many of the miracles happened in three gospels, two gospels. One miracle happened in all four, but this only happens in John. It only happens here in chapter 2. Now, I want you to notice some things about the, the setup for this miracle here, as we've always looked into the, you know, the backdrop here to get some understanding. First of all, I want you to notice when the wedding occurs. It happens on the third day. Now, we would think third day, Jesus rose on the third day. Three is a great number. We like that, third day. But the thing we don't understand is on the Jewish calendar, the third day is Tuesday. Now, come on, all you Gentiles. How many have been to a Tuesday wedding? I've done hundreds of weddings. I've never been to a Tuesday wedding. There's something in here. You see... To the Jew, Tuesday was the preferred day to do a wedding because the Jew's understanding of the days goes back to Genesis and the pattern of creation. So on this third day, on this Tuesday, uh, this is what happened in Genesis 1 when God created on that day. It says here in Genesis 1, 10 and 12, and God called the dry land earth and gathered together the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good, so he pronounces it good. Uh, verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb that yield seed and the fruit trees that yield fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And so it was, and the earth brought forth grass and herb that yield seed according to its kind and the trees that yield fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So what, if you were paying attention, you noticed there on that day of creation, God said it is good two times. So in the Jewish mindset, that Tuesday, that third day was a doubly blessed day. And it made it the preferred day to have weddings on. As Gentiles, we don't get it. The only way a Gentile have a wedding on a Tuesday is to get a really big discount on the place. 
Okay, no, but that's not the case here. This is, you know, this is the typical day, and I want you to see that. So for the Jews, this is the typical day to have a wedding. There's nothing weird about that day. There's nothing extraordinary about it. It's a Tuesday. That's a doubly blessed day. That's the day we like to have weddings on. So it's a typical Tuesday that Jesus goes to this wedding feast. The second thing I want you to notice is this, where the wedding occurs. It occurs in Cana of Galilee. Now, this was not a thriving metropolis or an epicenter of anything. This place was a remote, obscure place far removed from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was the center of action, the center of culture and art and music and spirituality. Jerusalem would be the place you would want to do something if you want to make a big splash or a big bang. You wouldn't do something in this obscure, you know, kind of backwoods place here. This is the place that Jesus chooses for his first miracle. Now, I live in the thriving metropolis of Dover Plains, New York. It would be like Jesus chooses to do his first miracle in Dover Plains, New York, rather than New York City. Come on, Jesus, it's just a little New York City, make a big splash, cameras, news crews, everything. Dover Plains. Goats. Cows, trailers. So there's something in this here that, you know, it's on the typical day in an ordinary place that Jesus decides to do his first miracle. And he's making a statement to us. that The fact that it's a typical day in an ordinary place it says three things to us. Number one, God's not motivated by the things man deems to be prominent or special. God's not like, oh, well, that's a holiday for them. I'll do it. No, or that's a special day. Or they, they made this a day to honor a president. Or they made this a day to honor, you know, Christopher Columbus or uh, the natives. I'm not sure what it is now. But, no, God's not moved by what man calls prominent or, or chooses to celebrate. Someone say amen. Now, man likes to celebrate himself. Did you ever notice that? Now, don't raise your hand because I don't want to think less of you. But do any people still watch re- the award shows? No, I mean, the viewership on those things, people are making some faces out there. You know, they make these award shows where it's like, you know, they just get together and they make up these categories to celebrate themselves and they clap and they cheer and they give each other trophies. And nobody wants to watch it anymore. And they're like indignant about it. Well, did you see my trophy? Hooray for you. But man celebrates himself. Man celebrates a lot of things. Man makes holidays that there's nothing holy about. And God is not impressed by that. He's not impressed by the fact that, you know, well, Jerusalem's the epicenter. But no, he chooses the obscure place, the the ordinary place. Number two, God's willing to do extraordinary things in ordinary places for ordinary people. I want you to get that today. Look, none of us are royalty. None of of us are, you know, uh, uh, household names. We're just ordinary people, amen? You know, sometimes we feel insignificant. You know, does anybody notice me? Am I making an impact? Am I making a dent in the darkness? You know, we feel small. Yet God loves ordinary people, and he loves ordinary places. And he visits us with miracles in ordinary places. Number three, God can break through the mundane routines of our ordinary lives and do miracles for us. 
God, you know, it's just I get up, I eat my breakfast, I get in the car, I listen to this, I get, I work, I work, I work. You know, we, we get caught up in this rat race and we think, you know, well, if I'm going to get a miracle, it's got to be, you know, in the middle of church, on the altar, it's got to be on top of a mountain. No. God reaches down into the ordinary. He does miraculous things. And he breaks up the room. He broke up a wedding to do this miracle here. And it was in an ordinary place. It was with ordinary people. It was on the typical day. Yet God breaks through. And I want to encourage you today. Maybe you just feel insignificant. Maybe you feel buried in the rat race. Maybe you feel like, you know, there's no place for God to intervene in your life. God is ready, willing, and able to do miracles for us. Because to him, we're special. We're not ordinary. He sees us, and he loves us, and he sent Jesus to die for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So God does miracles, not as man would do them, but in his own way. Now, in verse 2 here, Jesus is invited to the wedding feast. You know, an invitation to a wedding can be exciting, or some people dread it. You know, I've heard people complain, oh, it's a destination wedding. I got to take off for a week of work. This is going to cost me. You know, you get the wedding invitation. Uh Uh-oh. No vacation this year. Come on, second service. Don't try and be all holy on me now. I've heard some of your conversations. But a wedding, you know, you could be really excited. It could be a, a close family member, close friend. Uh, you know, weddings, in, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they have different responses. Here, Jesus is inviting to this feast, and he's invited in verse 2 with all of his disciples. Now, uh, it was both an honor and generous that Jesus is invited with all his disciples. You know, if you've ever thrown a wedding, had a wedding, been involved in a wedding, you know it costs money to invite people, amen? You got to pay for the venue. You got to pay for the food. You got to, you know, you got to take care of them while they're there. There's all of these things, and it, it was very generous that Jesus is invited, especially because when Jesus RSPV'd, it was Jesus plus 12. That's a lot of people, Could you imagine people showing up with plus 12? I mean, come on. You say, well, hey, I showed up. I brought all my friends. Well, they can stay in the parking lot because there's no prime rib for them, so just get them out of here. But it's Jesus plus 12, so that's an investment, and it's an honor. And the person who invited Jesus honored him. And he honored him that he was, a, a, you know, this prominent teacher who's coming onto the scene here and that he had disciples. But listen, Jesus is about to honor this person who invited him a hundredfold, amen? He's about to spare him the embarrassment of running out. And I want you to understand something. Whatever we sacrifice for God, whatever we, you know, whatever it costs us to serve him, whatever, you know, time and energy put in, God always pays us back a hundredfold. Amen. There's the, I guarantee you this. I've never been to heaven, but there's going to be nobody in heaven complaining. I got short change, you know. No, there's going to be nobody in heaven that, you know, is saying, I want to go back to earth. It was better there. The Hebrews came out of Egypt, and they got in the desert, and they were, had no food and water, and they we want to go back to Egypt. We had onions and garlic. I feel you with the garlic. I, I hear you. We want to go back. Could you imagine that, getting delivered from sin and wanting to go back? God always rewards us. God always takes care of us. Like the song we sang this morning, he's faithful, 
And you can't outgive him, amen? He's always a hundredfold. He's always 60-fold, whatever it is. He always gives back more than we put out. So here, this guy's being generous. He's being gracious. And at the same time, he's honoring Jesus. But he's about to be honored even more as Jesus is going to, you know, save him from this great embarrassment. Now, I want to talk about the fact that, you know, they ran out of something here at the wedding. And understand, when you run out of food or drink at a huge event, or when you have to plan a huge event and it's big, there's always anxiety for the ones who are planning it that you're going to run out of something, amen? I've been at parties where the people, you know, is a buffet, and they wiped it out. And the host is like, ah, and here they come in there, got pizzas now. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's anxious. It's, it's a little bit of stress. It's not life or death, but he's going to spare him some embarrassment. Now, you know, the, the anxiety that comes from running out, some people take that a little more seriously than others, amen? There's some cultures that are cereal overcookers. Anybody come from a culture or a family that over, you, you, they were overcookers? Come on, raise your hand. I want to see. I want to see who the weirdos are that don't, don't feed people. But if you're, if you're from certain cultures, you know, I used to go to my friend's house on Avenue D in uh, Manhattan, Mike Atila's, and his mom would make a tray of chicken that could feed the whole building and rice and everything. It was just me and him. I'm like, who else is coming over? He's like, this is us, man. You know, so, you know, I come from a culture where there were times at the Leonardi house, our Thanksgiving spread was so ridiculously big, you could see it from space. <laughs> My dad actually had to build a, a shelf to put on top of the table to get another tier so we could stack the food up. Because I'm not lying, you know, and, and they used to have the kitchen table full, the, the, the kids' table was full, the dining room table, and the shelf is full. Everybody eats. Everybody takes food home. You say, well, why do people do stuff like that? Because they don't want to be embarrassed about running out. Lack at one of these events was something that, you know, culturally would be an embarrassment. Jesus is about to step in and do something for this person who honored him, and he's about to honor him back. Now, notice something here as we get into the details of this miracle. Lord willing, we're going to spend a couple weeks here. But I, I want to point out the fact that this happens at a marriage feast. He could have did his first miracle anywhere, but he chose a marriage feast. And really what Jesus was doing there is putting his seal of approval on the institution of marriage. With his attendance at the wedding and with his, in, in, he's going to intervene to affect the outcome of it. Why? Because he's putting his stamp on marriage. Marriage is not, you know, a man-made construct. Marriage is not the idea of the government who wanted, you know, to do X, Y, and Z. No, marriage is ordained by God. Marriage is God's idea. Male and female made he them, amen. That a marriage is between a man and a woman to come together and to make covenant and to live together under the, under the blessing of God for a lifetime, Amen. You know, as Christians, sometimes we need to be reminded why. Because the, the world's view of marriage is just, I mean, people just don't have any respect for it. They avoid it. You know, they'll just live together forever. And God says, no, I want to bring a man and a woman together and make a covenant between them. Amen. It's so powerful. What happens? The two become one flesh. A miracle takes place at weddings. 
And Jesus was about to do a miracle of his own. And he's saying, yes, uh, marriage is God-ordained. It's God's idea. It's God's perfect will for mankind. The, the commitment that comes by way of the marital covenant is essential in the eyes of God. Ma- marriage is not like the icing on the cake. It's the cake. And that covenant that's made there is essential for what? Order in our society. Listen, when we make babies out of wedlock and we don't father our children and all the things that our society thinks is kind of you know, okay to do now, we make disruptions in the society that we're seeing the results. And it's a sad thing. It's sad for children. It's sad for parents. It's sad for society. Marriage solves that problem. It brings order. It's for order in society. It's for avoiding immorality. Let every man have his own wife. What Paul said to avoid immorality. It's the only avenue where we could express our sexuality in a healthy, holy way in the confines of marriage, amen? Look, I don't care what the TV says and the professor says and society says, living together is still immorality and we've got to stop. Oh, we're just going to shack up together. We're just going to, you know, try before you buy. Uh oh. You know, has the church mirrored the world more than it's mirrored scripture? Is our divorce rate the same as it is in the world? Like I said, I've done a lot of weddings and I see a lot of patterns. And I want to tell you something God's way is the best way and it still works. Raising children in marriage, children need a mother and a father for healthy family relationships, all of these things. It works so well if we just do it God's way. So Jesus is putting his stamp on marriage. He does his first miracle at the marriage feast, and that should say something to us. Now, everything's going fine till they run out of wine, and I know that rhymed. Everything's going good. They're having a feast. They got hitched up. I don't know how they did it, but, you know, they're together. They're married. They're having, it's party time now, amen? So they're all eating and drinking and feasting and laughing and enjoying each other, and everything's going great, but then they run out. The anxiety, that great fear of of lacking, of running out during an event like this, it comes to pass. And, you know, running out of wine would kill a feast back in that day. It would dampen the festive mood. People would actually begin to leave. Like my son Riley, he's leaving now. <laughs> we didn't run out of wine. Come back. So, you know, here's this feast, and they, they got no wine. And now, you know, people would start to whisper. And the, if there were dignitaries there, you know they'd, they'd have something to say. Well, I just can't believe it. You know, we ran out of wine. And you know how dignitaries are, right? There was a ha, 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 ha. Running out. People always got something to say. So now it's embarrassment time because, it, you know, they're, they've run out and they're in a panic. And you could tell Mary's going to come. Uh, you know, we, we, we kind of see that, you know, she was probably a relative here. Uh, Jesus is probably related to this person because Mary's behind the scenes and, you know, uh, she's privy to what's going on. You know, when you're part of the family, you're behind the, in the kitchen there, you know what's the food's coming out. She, she's on the scene and she knows. So probably a family member here and, you know, they've got a problem. They, she comes to him. Now, we don't know if Mary explored the normal options 
that you would explore when you run out of something? The word doesn't tell us, but, you know, did she tell the servants, go buy more wine or go to the wine store? Like, who's got wine? No, we don't know if any of that happened. What we do know is that she comes to Jesus and, and she, you know, without any backdrop or anything, she just kind of blurts it out. They have no wine. So, you know, now all of a sudden, this problem is now dropped into Jesus's lap. Don't you love when people drop problems into your lap? Like a grenade without a pin. Jesus, no wine. We're going to talk about that a little bit here. Now, we know that this miracle was God-ordained, amen? We know that Mary wasn't completely out of line, you know, probably moved by the Holy Spirit to some degree to come to Jesus. We're going to see Jesus' response to this is interesting, but I want to say this. Even though this is God-ordained and that, you know, Mary came to him, I want you to beware of people who try to make their problems your problems. I'm going to say that again. I want you to beware of people who try to make their problems your problems. There's a whole lot of people who make a whole lot of problems for themselves, and they're going to want to make them your problems so you can solve the problems for them so they can stay busy making more problems. Okay? So beware of people who try to make their problems your problems. In, in fact, the problems people create for themselves are not automatically yours to solve. You got to hear this. Even, even spouses, even family members, even church members, even people, listen, it's not automatically, well, I made a problem for myself. Can you solve it? It's not automatically our responsibility. Now, we need the Holy Spirit to discern when it is and when it isn't because if we start solving problems that were never ours to solve, we're not going to have the time and the energy and the wisdom to solve our own problems. Now, in fact, solving other people's problems can actually be harmful in two ways. Number one, it keeps you stretched thin and increases your stress level. How many would like to be stretched thinner than you are right now? John raised his hand. Ushers, take him out back and beat him. How many people would like their stress level raised? No, I mean, don't raise your hand, John. But nobody wants more stress. Nobody wants more problems. Nobody wants to be spread more thin. So why are we? Why why do we have more stress? I'll tell you why. Because we're solving problems that are other people's that were never ours to solve. What else? Uh, When we solve problems that are not automatically ours to solve, It keeps the person who made the problems from learning how not to make problems. Come on, parents. You have children, amen. I want want my children to learn how to handle their business. You know, I'll say to them, handle your business. And they do. And they're, you know, good boys. They handle their business. And when we have to help, we help. When God says, we help. But listen, people all around us will throw all their problems on our lap. And say, solve it. We have no wine. We're going to see Jesus' response to this here. I want to say a few things about that before we get there. When When you categorically try to solve every problem that gets dropped into your life, you're going to become known as what's called an enabler. And you and I never want to be an enabler. Okay, because an enabler doesn't do good things. If you've been involved with people who have alcohol addiction or drug addiction or any kind of recovery You know, you're going to see that, you know, people have enablers in their life that keep them doing the wrong behaviors over and over again and never getting out of the cycle. 
Why? Because when they mess up and they, they overspend and they don't have the money for what they need now, well, I, I'll pay the check or I'll bail you out or I'll rescue you or I'll get you out. Of, no, and understand all we're doing is, is making the time that they stay in bondage longer. Being an enabler is not a good thing. Now, I know our hearts get involved and I know we want the best for people and I know we don't like to see people we love suffer. But sometimes we need the Holy Spirit and we need to hear him say, no, that's enough. We need to hear him say, no, just let him go through the valley. I'll be with him. I'm God. You're not God. Amen. We can't be God for everybody. Now, don't get me wrong. There's times where God will tell us, roll up your sleeves and jump in. And if the Holy Spirit prompts you to do that, do it. But if you see the fruit of it is that they're getting worse or they're not getting free, then you need to come before the Lord and repent and say, God, I don't want to enable sin. I, I'm going to pray here, and I'm going to, I'm going to release it to you and put it at your feet, and you take care of it. So not every problem that there is out there is ours to solve. When we always rescue people out of trouble, uh, it reinforces their recklessness, and it keeps them from taking responsibility in life. It doesn't allow them to change, and it's not healthy for either party. Verse 4 is the last verse. We're going to cover here today. Verse 4 is interesting. Jesus is getting borderline snippy with his own mother. Now, when I was little, if I would have said this to my mom, I would have needed dental work. Remember those days? Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Some versions say us. He included his disciples. My hour has not yet come yet. So we're going to take a look at that. But understand, Jesus' response is, you know, not typical for Jesus. He's very gracious. He's very humble. It's an interesting response here. What he's showing by saying this to her is that, you know, Mom, you're just borderline here of crossing the line. You're almost out of line because though I'm your little boy, I'm not your little miracle boy. Understand this. Jesus didn't do his father Joseph's will. Jesus didn't do his mother's will. Jesus came to do his heavenly father's will. Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. Now, young people, don't try this at home. When your mom tells you to do something, I'm about my father's business. Get out of here with that. Okay? But Jesus is making a point here. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't bow the knee to the will of man, whether it's his, you know, Joseph or Mary or brother and sister. No, he doesn't even show favoritism. He only does what he sees the Father doing. I came to do the will of him who sent me, he said. Come on. So understand this. What he's really doing here when he says, Mom, come on, you know, you're on the line here, he's really setting up a boundary for himself. Jesus is displaying something that all of us need, and that's boundaries. In fact, let me make sure you're awake this morning. I want you on the count of three to say boundaries. One, two, three. Boundaries. You're awake. Praise God. So you need boundaries. I need boundaries. We all need boundaries. And Jesus is setting a boundary here. Now, understand something. Allow God to show you what the healthy boundary looks like for your life. Every one of us are different. Some people are slow-moving thinkers, they're ponderers, and some people are high-energy doers and go-getters. Come on, even in that description, you realize what camp you fall into. Some people love chaos. Do you know people like that? 
Man, if it's crazy and it's chaotic, they want to jump right in. Let's break something. Let's fix something. Let's do something. Even if it's wrong, let's do it. And then you got people on the other end of the spectrum. They're like, oh, I just need to think about it. I need to pray about it. I need to, I can help, but let me think what I'm going to do and say. Look, whatever your personality makeup is, that's where you have to fall in because my boundaries are going to look different than your boundaries. And I want us to try something here this morning. I tried this with first service. They did really good. I want us to practice saying a specific word, and that word is no. Okay. Sometimes, well, I got a problem. You need to fix it. And sometimes the answer is no. So on the count of three, one, two, three. No. Wow, you were good right out of the box. I had to do it twice with first service. Sometimes the answer is no. And you say, well, what, is that? what does that no do? That no creates a bounding. Now, we're all different. We all have different makeups. The right boundary for me might not be the right boundary for you on certain things. But listen, when we have the right boundaries for us, our relationships are going to get better. Our spiritual growth is going to be more consistent. We're going to have emotional and spiritual stability. Does that sound good to anybody? Amen. We need boundaries. Now, part of having healthy boundaries means this, that we're allowed to say no without feeling guilty. I made you practice saying no, so when you say no, don't feel guilty about it. Amen? Some people are, I can feel the resistance. No. Well, you're going to spread yourself thin. You're going to keep stressed out. You're not going to accomplish the will of God for your life. You're going to be doing everything he told you not to do, and you're not going to have time to do the will of God for your life. So understand, you can feel, you can say no, but you don't have to feel guilty. Now, again, beware of people who want to make you feel guilty for saying no. Those are not good people. Those are manipulators. Now, when, when they, you say, oh, I can't believe you do this to me. I can't believe in my hour of need. I've been so good to you. You've probably heard people say things to you like that before. I, don't want, I want to expose what that is. It's a spirit of manipulation. Now, I mean, unless you're genuinely out of line, you know, your dad calls you to do something. No, I'm, I'm staying home watching TV all day. Well, then you're a bum. But uh, I'm saying someone who's trying to, mani- you know, well, you got to come move my furniture. You got to come fix it. Uh, can't do it. And then they want to manipulate you. Be careful of allowing people like that in your life. Amen. Part of having healthy boundaries means being able to say no without feeling guilty. Also, part of it is that you expect to be treated with respect. No one has the right to disrespect you, to disrupt your peace, to disrupt your marriage or your home. Maybe, you know, you work uh, for a boss that's disrespectful, has no respect for your marriage or for your family, you know, and just, well, you got to work. Well, I got to go to my son's. Well, no, you got to work. And, and listen, people like that that don't have any respect for you as an individual, you, you need to begin to look for a different job. You shouldn't allow toxic manipulators in your life like that. Oh, well, pastor, it's my, it's my job. Listen, your job is not your supply. God in heaven is your supply. 
I see so many people sell themselves so short and allow themselves to live in toxic work environments that rob their joy, that hurt their marriages, that destroy their families. Why? For money, God is your source. Listen, you begin to knock on some doors. You begin to pray. Don't quit before you get another job. That's not wisdom. (laughs) Don't call me on Monday. I quit. No. But don't sell yourself short either. I see so many people, oh, I'm stuck here, and this is all I can do. And I'm looking at them. You're loaded with gifts. You got potential. You got talent. The sky's the limit. I can't tell you the people I've just pulled them aside and say, hey, where you are now, that's a lid on your life. You need to begin to pray. And then watch God rip the lid off and promote them, and they increase in every way. So understand, you know, part of having healthy boundaries is, Demanding that you're treated with respect and that your needs are important as other people's needs. You know, you and I all have needs, amen. You know, moms are bad at this. They'll meet everybody's needs and their needs never get met. And that's not right. Stop doing that to your moms. Fathers too, amen. We all have needs and those needs are, you know, important. And when they're unmet, it creates problems in us. We're allowed to have flaws and make mistakes. Beware of people who won't allow you to make any mistakes. You make a mistake, they want to just rip you to shreds, but they can make mistakes. Come on. We're allowed to reject unreasonable expectations of others upon ourselves. Be careful. You know, this boundary thing, it, it has a lot to do with abusive relationships and There's all kinds of things that come into play here, but I hope you're hearing these things with your heart and that the Holy Spirit's identifying any areas in your life that are suffering because of this. You and I need boundaries. Jesus had them. We're allowed to have them, amen? Jesus didn't make everybody's problem his problem. He walked through a crowd. He healed one person. Other people he didn't. He went to the pool of Bethesda for one man. There was a lot of sick people there. He spoke to the rich young ruler, and he said, you know, you know, sell your goods, give it to the poor, take up your cross and follow me. And the rich young ruler walked away sad. Do you remember that? You know, some of us would have tackled him. I'll make you a second offer. Because we, we, we think we have to solve everybody's problems. Jesus let him walk away. There was no plan B. There was no second offer. This is it. Wow. That's always been sobering to me. So, mom, you're just about on the line here. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come yet. So he's got boundaries. And I want to say something. Jesus knew what concerned him and what didn't. And that's important. I, I've said this before. This is, a, this is one of my... Uh, things that God put in my heart. It's a quote that you can use. Find out what your business is and mind it. Let me tell you that on this side too over here. Find out what your business is and mind it. You ever see people, they can't mind their business and they get involved in all kinds of stuff that's none of their business and then they give people the business. You know, you and I have enough, I'm convinced at this age, I got enough strength, enough energy, enough anointing, and enough mental focus to do the will of God for my life. And you know what I got left over? Not too much. You know, so we've got to find out what our business is in mind. Jesus knew what his mission was. 
He knew what his business was. He didn't have to, well, let me start an outreach to the Pharisees or let me start a Bible group and we'll study here with the Sadducees. No, he, he knew. He came to seek and to save the lost sheep of Israel. Amen. He came to die on the cross and rise from the grave on the third day. That was his mission. He, he came to do his father's business. He only did what he saw the father doing. So Jesus knew what concerned him. That's why he says to his mother, what concern how does this concern me, mom? You know, why are you bringing this to me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. That's an interesting thing there. Um, what Jesus is saying when he says, my hour has not yet come, is he's showing that he had a very real sense of the father's timing in his life. There's certain things God's called you to do. There's certain relationships God's called you to build. There's certain places God's called you to go, but it's all about timing. If you show up at the wrong place at the wrong time, the right people aren't going to be there, and it's going to be a mess. We need to be submitted to the timing of the Father, and Jesus was. Never let people push you into anything God hasn't told you to do. Even pastors. Well, brother, God has called you to this ministry. If he didn't tell you that, you say, Pastor, God didn't tell me that quiet now. Because I've seen that. I've been around the block a long time. I've been in ministry full time for 27 years, and I've seen a lot of people push people into situations because they needed a body there when God never called them to do that. And it's always made trouble in the body. It's always been detrimental to the person. Hear me today. We need to be doing what we're called to do, nothing more, nothing less. When we're in the perfect will of God, the anointing will flow, the blessing will flow, the provision will flow. Amen. You know, it used to be back in the day when I was coming up, you'd have people on the radio or ministries on TV begging for money. Oh, if you don't send in your tax-deductible, non-refundable check, we're going to go off the air. And I used to sit there and go, good, good. Because God finances and sustains and takes care of what's his idea, amen? <laughs> if we got to beg people, I'm getting off topic. I'll get back to my notes. But Jesus had a sense of the Father's timing, and he followed it. You know, uh, don't let p- people push you into things that God hasn't called you to do. Coming up in the ministry, there are so many times where people spoke to me, and they knew better than I knew, better than the Holy Spirit knew. They knew what I was supposed to do. And they told me, no, you know, some of them had good intentions, and some of them, looking back, didn't have good intentions. But they say, you should go your own way. You should do your own thing. You should start your own church. If I had a nickel for every time somebody told me that coming up, Pastor Mike, and the Holy Spirit was like, no, stand fast, serve Lay your life down. He wasn't telling me any of that. Go on the mission field. Do music as a career. Uh, Be an evangelist. Move to another state. Go get a secular job. Be bivocational. Make money. Get benefits. Yeah, I've had people tell me all that stuff. Some with good intentions, some with bad intentions. And the Holy Spirit, the still small voice of God, always directed me and guided me and said, stand Twenty-seven years later, I'm still here. I don't know if that's a praise request or a prayer. 
<laughs> but the will of God. The best place to be is in the will of God, amen? Don't let people tell you. Let God tell you. Listen to me. I'm going to close with this. Always be spirit-led and not people-driven. Always be spirit-led and not people-driven. Jesus loved people, but he didn't let them drive them. Jesus loved people, but he didn't serve them. He served his Father. He did his Father's will, and he was led by the Spirit. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, I thank you for the introduction to this message, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that you would teach all of us, Lord, uh, Father, to understand that we are to, you know, have boundaries in our life, that we're not to be enablers, we're not to let other people set the pace or to drive us, but God, we're, we're to serve your purposes in the earth for, with our lives. Father, help my brothers and sisters that have been roped into or tricked into solving other people's problems that you never call, you never ask them to solve. Father, if they're spread thin, if they're stressed out, teach them to say no and let them unencumber themselves so that they can find the joy of the Lord in doing your perfect will. Father, I pray in these last days that we would be available, that we wouldn't fill up our plates with so many distractions that the Lord of the harvest, when he calls us to, to come in and reap in the harvest, that we're unavailable because we're too busy, we're too broke, we're too in debt. So set your people free today and help us, Lord, to be your hands and feet to a world that's broken and hurting, to be the love of Jesus to people that are confused and disillusioned. Father, help us to be what the word says, the light in the darkness. We're thankful for miracles. We're thankful that you do them in the lives of ordinary people. We qualify, so we look for miracles in our lives. In Jesus' name, 